Let's talk about God. Let's talk about God today. We're in the season of Easter, and uh, traditionally I've always used this time to teach about God. Um, I read a quote from a student of the Bible. Um, his name escapes me. It doesn't matter. But he said, in his experience, many preachers will talk about God, about what God expects of us, about what God has done for us, but not many will talk precisely about who God is. Who is God? What exactly is God? And so, this is an important time for us to talk about God, to talk about who God is, about what God is. And today what I want to talk about is a continuation of that, but really answer the question, what is the church? There's a connection between God and the church. And the question, the big question is, what is the church? And how does the nature of God speak about the church? So if you look in your notes, you're going to see three pictures. And I'm going to use these three pictures to walk us through three ways of understanding God, but also the church. Three ways of understanding who God is, but also understanding who we are the church is. And so this first picture, you see um, figure one, if I can call it that. This first picture is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what we're talking about, and last Sunday we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. Someone asked me, um, does the word Trinity appear in the Bible? It does not. But God as three persons, this is an idea that is written Throughout the scripture, it must be explained. But I think the big question that we're asking is, how do you define the space, the relationship between the three persons? Because really, when it comes down to it, if we don't understand the Trinity, then basically we are all tritheists. We're all polytheists. There's, an, there's, a, there, there's a problem with this. Christianity no longer has integrity uh, essentially, we just we become one of the cults, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or latter. You know, we, we go that direction when we affirm tritheism. If we don't affirm the unity of God, um, we have to define that space between the three persons and somehow do it so that we can understand God as one God. How do we do that? This space between, um, I think, a story. It's kind of like this. Um, uh, some of us have kids that are old enough to start going out. Um, alone <laughs> with members of the opposite gender. And let's say, let's say, let's say you and, 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 and this, other, this other person, this other young person, both share a love for a certain type of movie. And so whenever these movies come out, maybe they're Marvel movies or something like that, you'll go together to watch these movies. And you go together, and it's something that your other friends are not interested in, and so repeatedly you're going with this girl or with this boy, this, this just this other you know, person. And after a while you start looking at each other. I mean, you buy your own popcorn. So you, so you make sure you're not doing that kind of thing where you accidentally touch each other and it, things get awkward. You're well defined. But after you do this a number of times, you, know, you start looking at, you know, you know, if you're a dude, you start looking at her. Or if you're a lady, you start looking at him. And you start asking the question, what is this space between us? There's this awkward tension. Um, I think we need to have a define the relationship talk. Define the relationship. 
So that essentially is the question that we're asking. How do we define the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? How do we understand that space between? So you're sitting next to this girl or this guy, and maybe you'll sit one seat apart so that you can clearly define this is the space between. We're just platonic, that's all. Or maybe you sit next to each other, you're like, hey, well, I'm cool with it. She's a friend. He, you know, there's no big deal, but there's this, still this awkward, I don't, I, honestly, I'm, I for one, I, I don't believe in platonic friendships. I think everything inevitably turns a certain way. That's just my personal opinion. But the, the thing is, there's this awkward tension, and you kind of have to define the relationship. Anyway, let's talk about God. So the point is, let's bring this back to God. It's not a relationship seminar. How do we define this awkward, this space between, are they united or are they not? I think the main point that we want to, when we talk about the, the Trinity, the main point that we want to draw out is there is a real relationship between these persons. There's a real relationship, and that relationship, I think, is our payload that we want to focus on. That is our payload. This relationship, one analogy, I've said, I've taught this, that all analogies fall apart. They're not perfect when it comes to describing the Trinity. Um, but here's one analogy. This analogy comes from an old movie. Um, I think we're all old here. So all the kids, they went off to youth group and, and different things. But the analogy that I think of is from the movie The Matrix. I mean, a movie that's old enough to be on video cassette. Well, okay. Um, in this movie, you have agents. In the first movie, there were three, to be precise. And the three agents were so cool. Of course, they focused on one agent, Agent Smith. But all three of them were united. You had the sense that they were three programs, but run by one machine, run by one consciousness. So whenever, in, uh, whenever instructions were downloaded, simultaneously, all three of them would go like this. Do you remember that? So simultaneously, all of them, and then when the information was downloaded, then they would all raise their heads again. And they, it was almost like there was this single mind. There's one mind downloading to three agents. And then when they would speak, they would do this thing, and they would complete each other's sentences. Do you remember that? And it was this eerie sense that they were three independent agents, and yet they were one mind, operating with one... Uh, operating under one, like one, you know, OS or one mind. Um, another thing that was notable, and this is where I want to draw this connection to the Trinity. Of course, it's not a perfect analogy. It's very imperfect. But this is important to notice. Amongst the three of them, the movie focused on Agent Smith, if you guys remember the movie. But was Agent Smith any higher than the others? Like there was this one scene where, you know, they would walk in and Agent Smith was interrogating Morpheus and they said, what are you doing? There was no hierarchy. There was no subordination. They were all, um, they were all, there, there was no like this. Now, the important analogy to draw here, again, it's a very imperfect analogy. There's problems with this. But the main thing I want to draw out is when it comes to God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there is no hierarchy and there is no subordination. What we've taught, what, what the church has believed for thousands of years is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, like the three agents, they all are on the same level. In fact, this higher level, this higher existence of God, of being God. If you remember, I talked about this higher, this higher existence, singularly known as God. 
within this, within this higher realm of being, you don't have the Father commanding the Son, and then they would kind of command the Holy Spirit. All of them are on this equal playing field, and there is no subordination. In fact, there was a heresy in the early church called subordinationism, where people said, well, still, Jesus, he took orders from the Father. That means that Jesus is something less than the Father. But this doesn't hold because Jesus says in the Gospels, he says, before Abraham was born, I am. He doesn't say, I was, or I come after. He says, I am. So Jesus is making a divine claim, I am God. So what we're seeing is Jesus, not only is he on par with God, he says, I am, I am eternally existent. And so what happens is there isn't a time, and this is what we Christians, this is the orthodox belief, but we believe there never was a time when the Son did not exist. He was eternally coexistent with the Father. There is no hierarchy. There is no subordination. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally coexistent. So it's important to know that what we have in Jesus is someone who is nothing less than God, not one iota. But this gets us now to the second picture, the second of three. And if you can pull that up on the screen, there's some technical jargon here, and um, I, I do that just for a reason, but just hang with me for a bit. There is no hierarchy and there is no subordination when it comes to the Trinity, but there is sequence. There is this thing called flow. The Father sends the Holy I'm, I'm sorry, the Father sends Jesus the Son, and Father and Son send the Holy Spirit. There is no hierarchy, but there is this flow, this sequence. The technical terms there, and I'm, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm telling this not because I want to throw out theological jargon, but because th there's a reason why. But the way the sequence works, even though, the, even though they are all equal, even though they are all the same, the Father generates the Son. The Son comes from the Father. The Father generates the Son eternally. This is always going on. This is how the Trinity works, or this is how we Christians believe that in this higher existence, the Father is always generating the Son, and the Son is always filiating. That's the word for affiliation. I, belong, I, 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 am, I, I, I relate, filiating back to the Father. And then Father and Son together, they're continuously spirating, or this is the word aspirating, breathing the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, which we understand in the New Testament as, as the wind, pneuma, in the Old Testament as the breath of God, the ruach, th this is a continual breathing. Just as much as you and I, as long as we're breathing, there's life, right? The minute we stop breathing, it goes, so the Holy Spirit is continually, as God lives, breathing. You can ask the question, which comes first, life or breath? You, you, it's, it's one and the same. Life is breath. Breath is life. And so in the same way, we're not saying that the Holy Spirit comes last. The Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit continually, continually proceeds from Father and Son. So what I'm trying to articulate, and I'm going to make this practical now. What I'm trying to articulate is not a hierarchy, first the Father, then the Son, then the Holy Spirit. But what I'm trying to articulate is this continual, 
continual, eternal sequence, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this continual sequence that exists. Um, and the technical term for this is perichoresis. Uh, somewhere, somewhere there's a theologian shaking his head. He's watching this maybe on Facebook Live or something. He's like, oh my gosh, the pastor's trying to explain perichoresis. But here's where it gets interesting. That word perichoresis is where we get the word choreography from. Peri means around. Choresis means to dance. Literally, literally what this word perichoresis means is to dance around. And what's being described in this heavenly realm, in God, in the metaphysics of God, is what Tim Keller, preacher Tim Keller, calls the dance of God. Friends, what I'm talking about today is that in God's existence, there is a dance. There's a flow. And I believe that humanity carries the DNA of God's flowing, the dance of God. We have it in us. That creation, when you see, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled um, that they're remaking the Lion King movie. I'm so excited. I can't wait to take my kids and to say and turn to my son and say, Simba, you, I am your father. I think that's a mixture of like Star Wars and, and the Lion King or something. But I, I can't wait to, to hear the beginning, the circle of life, right? The circle, I mean, you see all the animals rising up, and it's this, it's this fair circle. You, you know, animals have to be eaten, and then there's this order, and there's this structure, and the circle of life, and I'm feeling this because I believe that creation, it's funny, when I get excited, the babies cry out, right? That, to me, is an expression of God's dance in this world, that God's DNA, the dance of God is existent in the children, in the babies that cry out. It's existent in creation. It's existent in us. So what I'm saying is, friends, if God is this, not this hierarchy of subordination, we can't believe that because Jesus is 100% God. He's not less. He's not 99.9%. But what we're saying is, but there is a flow. There is a sequence. What we're talking about is, If there is this dance in the inner existence of God, there's a dance in this world as well. There's this flow. There's a sequence. Periodically, sometimes in life, that flow, that, that sequence, it gets broken. It gets interrupted. Relationships sometimes suffer. Um, sometimes maybe one person of the circle, of the flow, says, you know, like if I were to say it's all about me, you know, I could break that flow. You know, it's a delicate dance, it really is. Um, being the leader of any organization, being a member, working at a company, if HR doesn't listen to you, you've got problems, right? Or in a family, if the husband and the wife are not on the same page, and the, 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 the flow, you know, actually, here's a, a great analogy. Um, if I can talk about this flow of this dance of God, what Tim Keller calls the dance of God. Um, I'm really enjoying watching the NBA Finals, the playoffs right now. 
and say what you want about the Golden State Warriors and their acquisition of Kevin Durant a couple of years ago. But right now, it's pretty remarkable that they're getting to where they are without the superstar. You know, I know even with the Houston Rockets, um, this, was a, this was LeBron, I mean, not LeBron, uh, James Harden's, this was his season. But there were times where I was watching James Harden, and I was wondering, you know, he's taking the ball a lot. <laughs> and it's just interesting to me as I, I watch the Warriors do their thing right now, without their superstar player, without Kevin Durant, you still, and in fact, without three of their strong players, there is this flow. Call it what you want, you know, you call it Thompson, uh, Curry, you know, I think Iguodala's still out as well, right? I don't know, right? But you got this passing around, that it's this thing that I am not a, a basketball savant, I'm not a sports savant, but if I'm sitting and I watch a game, whether it's basketball or baseball or football, for three hours, you can start getting the sense there's a rhythm, there's a flow. This team knows how to pass the ball. And that's what frustrates me. You know, I'm probably going to make some people unhappy here. That's what frustrates me when, when we have like a, a James Harden. It's all about him and right, you know, give me the ball and I'm just going to, you know, you know, get my, you know, my, my uh, over, break my records for games over 30 points. And it's not just about one superstar, but you know, when you see a flow, when you see a team that really knows how to use this rule of three, that knows how to pass the ball, that knows that you can win when you're giving it up, that knows that you can win when you're giving of the self. So at the essence of the inner trinity, of the essence of God, is this utter, hear me out, this utter selflessness utter and complete giving. How do we understand God, three persons, as one? We can understand it when the self is constantly in this giving, and this giving it up, and this, this game really is, the ball is being passed around. Now you're going to say, then who's going to shoot the ball? But ultimately, this giving, this, this selflessness is at the essence. It's at the essence. It's at the essence of relationship and at the essence of God's existence, and therefore the pathway for you and I is repeatedly, we talked about this last night, right, in, in premarital, is repeatedly looking at myself and saying, where is self running rampant and amok? Where is my self? Am I needing to have every look? Give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball. And that the secret, I think, of life, I might be so bold as to say this, the secret of life, really we can see it in God, is giving it up. It's giving self up. The pathway to life is learning that it's not egocentricism, but it's about other centricism. Now, you're wondering at this point, Pastor, um, give us some biblical evidence. Where do we have, what, does, what does the Bible say about this? I want to read a couple of verses from the Gospel of John. Because in particular, John talks about this sequence a lot. Maybe John had an insider's ear that whenever Jesus said these things, he recorded, he remembered. But he writes down about Jesus, 
uh, he writes down Jesus' words of this sending. Listen to John chapter 4. Jesus says, my food, the food I eat, is to do the will of the Father who sent me. And then in John chapter 5, Jesus says, I don't seek my own will. I mean, how about that for a marriage? When the husband says, I always pick on the men, right? When the husband says, I don't seek to do my own will. I was just talking about that this morning with, with, with a young husband here. But how beautiful it is when the husband seeks the will of his wife. When you seek the will, I don't seek, so here Jesus says, I don't seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Pastor, my marriage is suffering. Then I'd like for you, here's your prescription. This is the doctor's prescription. Write it down, John chapter 5. Pray those words of John chapter 5, verse 30, over and over and over again. I don't seek my own will. 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 Well, Pastor, why should I pray that? Because she's the one who has to learn to seek my will. Well, actually, no. It all begins with me. If I can learn to seek the will of another. John chapter 8. Jesus says, the Father who sent me testifies about me. And then later, I haven't come of my own initiative but the Father sent me. In John chapter 12, Jesus says, he who, or he, he, the person who sees me sees the one who sent me. These are Trinitarian verses. It doesn't scream explicitly Trinity, but it talks about how the Father and the Son relate. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. John chapter 20, the Father, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So let me ask you a question here. What is the word, the verb, that's been repeated again and again? In its simplest form. The word that's been repeated all throughout John. And this is a theme in John. Does anybody know that word? Anybody bold enough to say? It begins with an S. Send. Send. You know, going back to that picture, if you can just pull up figure two, that, that second picture... I know I put in all these, these terms, these jargon. I did that just to illustrate the dance of God, this eternal kind of dancing around. But, you know, replace all those words with a simple word, send. Father sends the Son. The Son is sent by the Father. Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. Send. So how another way we can understand the sequence and the flow is this flow of sending, sending, sending. But this is where it ties back to the original thing and if you can pull up the third and last picture, and we'll round off the basis with this. The third and last picture, the secret is this. The Father sends the Son. The Son is sent by the Father. The Father and Son send the Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit send us. Send us. When he says in John chapter 20, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So this is in some ways a continuation of last Sunday's talk. Last Sunday talking about the Trinity. And we've, we're continuing the Trinity, but really the main drive and where I want to land this plane is to talk about the church. What is the church about? Some people might come from high church, maybe even a Catholic tradition where you came to Mass, the church was just about this 
about the communion. Maybe you grew up a Protestant. You came to the church. The church is about preaching of the word. What is the church? Is it the walls? Is it the steeple? You know, I can tell you when we started Woven in the first three or four years, uh, everybody that was part of the team, good people. But we met in a, in a gymnasium. We didn't have a sense of location. And then we started meeting here a year ago. And then we start to feel the sense of, okay, this is our building. We have ownership. This is the location that we are. We're in between the suburbs and the city. But what is the church? Why do we go to church? Why is it important for us to come to church regularly? Friends, what I'm doing now is I'm connecting the church to this doctrine of God. That we can understand the purpose of the church in terms of God's inner existence and his three, and his triune existence. In other words, if God exists to send, to send, to send, then we as a church are a sent people. We as a church, you, let me say that, you as a church, you don't have a mission. God's mission has you. It's not God's church has a mission. God's church has a mission committee or God's, the church has a mission team. God's mission that comes from his inner existence, sending, sending to save the world. God's mission has a church. God's mission that comes from his inner existence has a church. His mission. That, friends, is where I want to close this out on. That mission of God in the world is why we're here. That every person that comes here, you don't come just to get a bless up or a fill up or to hear a good sermon or to be encouraged, but you come here to hear your rallying cry. This is why, this is why I, li I like movies, war movies. That just before they go into battle, there always has to be somebody in the front that raises his sword and, and, and says some charge. And everybody, you know, like, this is a red day, a sword day, you know, and charge. And we're all, you know, that's, that's really all the sermon is. It's a charge Sunday after Sunday. And it's a unique privilege. For me, it really is. That every Sunday I get to come up here, you know, I raise the sword and say, this is the day. Tomorrow you're going to sanctify the world and you're going to get hit in a hail of bullets. It's like the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan. I mean, when the thing comes down right away, Monday morning, 8 a.m., and you're already barraged with all these emails and all these attacks, and you're going out there, you didn't even make it out of the boat. And the thing is, you got to face this world. But the thing is, the mission, the mission of God, the sending, the being sent, being the light in the world, that's the charge Sunday after Sunday. The purpose that we gather, and friends, the, the reason Woven started was because we saw it was not sufficient for us just to do a Korean church, just amongst our own ethnicity, just to make a club. We saw that Houston, the most diverse city in the country, growing by a megachurch every week. People coming, I think the percentage is, what is it, like one in five come from somewhere else other than America. That we have a mission. 
that the light is not meant to be shared just amongst my Korean brethren, but it's meant to be shared with everybody in this community. That's why we're here in Kingdom City today, because we believe in this mission. It's why we started Woven. That this, this, this charge in John chapter 17, when Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent all of these Christians Every single one of you, I've sent you into the world. The purpose of church, friends, in my opinion, is mission, 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 mission. Let me close with a story to illustrate what I mean by mission. Because I want you to understand how nuanced this is. I want you to get this paradigm shift to see yourself as a missionary. Because we have this understanding that missionaries are those few people, and we have some missionaries in our midst, those who, I'm sure, Brother, Brother Brick, there was a moment where you stand up, you stood up in a congregation, and, and, and I, I, formerly I was a YWAMer, so I know this. You know, we're crying and we're saying, Lord, I give my life to missions, and you went the extra mile and you did it. You served overseas in, in Africa and throughout the world. But part of you, honestly, inside, recognized that people saw you just as I, I knew for me. In other words, we knew that there was a, a sort of sense of admiration, that there is a real Christian. I hope I'm not speaking for you too much, but I, I, hey, I'm a sinner, so I'm talking about myself. So that when I stood up and I answered the call, I knew that, yes, I'm answering Jesus' call, but part of me also knew that maybe this singles me out, maybe this makes me. But the important message that I'm trying to communicate is that at the close of this service, every single one of you are charged as missionaries. There is a distinct call for global missions. And this is a high call and an extremely sacrificial call. But I don't want anybody here to say I am not a missionary. Is that fair? I hope it is. Because I want to honor the missionaries in our midst. Because you took a sacrifice that many people don't. But at the expense of the rest of you, I don't want you to think, therefore, I don't have to preach the gospel. Brother Brick is doing it for us, so I don't have to do anything. I'll just, you know, make money and send it to Brother Brick. Well, do that too. Do that too. But I want you to understand that what the work that you do in itself is mission. I want you to understand that you, uh, uh, Brother Brick went out for all of us, so therefore I'm done. You know, the, the commissioning, you know, we sent him. No, did you hear what Jesus says? Jesus says in John chapter 17, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent Brother Brick into the world. It says, I have sent them. And what this means is every single one of you, whether your profession is in teaching, in law, in tech, in IT, in finance, in accounting, in parent raising, you are a missionary. You know, this past Wednesday, we had a gathering here at Kingdom City of um, different leaders in the faith and work movement here in Houston. It was really cool. And I invited a sister, um, I won't mention her name, um, but sp specifically I just sensed in my spirit, invite this sister. And she came out, and we were going around introducing ourselves, and this person was like, oh, you know, I do this in the faith and work, and, you know, I, this, is my, this is what I do. And then when we came around to her, she stood up and she said, my name is so-and-so, and I'm just a stay-at-home mom. Um, so I don't know why I'm here, but I just feel compelled to be here. But the thing is, when she spoke, she brought, in my spirit, I sensed that she brought a dimension to this room 
that it was almost like a reality. It was almost, it was more fragrant than, you know, here we come like, oh, this is what I do and this is what I do. And you have somebody that says, I change diapers for a living. Or somebody that says, I take my children, I care for them. Work and the definition of work is much more broader than we realize. Good work. Mission involves the daily work. This is what Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, said. He talked about the sanctity of changing diapers and how this is work. Friends, close with this story. I know I've been drawing this out. There was a, this is a true story. Um, there was a woman um, in Boston, and this woman, um, she taught Sunday school at her church for 30 years. Now, first of all, to be a member of a church for 30 years, this is a witness. It's a testimony. And to faithfully teach Sunday school at your church for 30 years is a witness and a testimony. High praise for that. But here's the thing. This woman was also responsible for cleaning up. I mean, she, was, she probably was in politics or something. But she was the person that cleaned up Boston Harbor. As a, as a politician, as a civil servant, she was the one that was responsible for cleaning up the whole of Boston Harbor, which was a nightmare for the entire city. But the thing that is ironic and even tragic is after all those years of her service, she came up to the front and the church recognized her for 30 years of service teaching Sunday school, not for cleaning up the city and cleaning up Boston Harbor. She was recognized for her church in for her work in the church, but not recognized for the work of the church. I guess what I'm trying to do in conclusion is bring us to this understanding that our service for the church in some ways is really temporal. But the things that we do out in the world, caring for people, good administration, faithfully being a witness in your workplaces, this is just as much, just as much church work. It's just as much church work. So church, this is what you are. What is the church? What is the church? You are people who are sent. All of you are sent by the Father, by the Son, and by the Holy Spirit you're sent to do good. You're sent to execute justice and compassion and mercy. Your real, your real work, your real work is about to begin.